Good afternoon. On behalf of the Bradley Center for Philanthropy and Civic Renewal, Kristen McIntyre and I welcome you to a panel discussion entitled Creating Clarity for Nonprofits, which will, as the invitation suggested, discuss the recent results of a bipartisan poll asking voters across the country what their opinions are on clearer rules for political activity and the relationship between changing IRS rules and free speech. It's a particular honor to uh, co-host today's panel with the prominent Washington, D.C. nonprofit uh, Public Citizen, which prides itself on ensuring that all citizens are represented in the halls of power. I should add that uh, Public Citizen paid for, the, paid for the survey and we paid for the sandwiches, so I think we're probably coming out ahead. They're not... The, the, the sandwiches uh, would have to be pretty good sandwiches to uh, <laughs> first our customary preview of coming attractions. On November 4, in what is uh, likely to be the final uh, panel discussion of some 100 or so that uh, the Bradley Center has held over the past 10 years, we will discuss a monograph commissioned by the Center from a promising young historian by the name of Ben Soskis. Uh, the monograph addresses perhaps the central concept of modern philanthropy, namely uh, the much-heralded distinction between philanthropy on the one hand and charity on the other. Uh, although most treatments of that division have regarded philanthropy as manifestly superior to charity, uh, Ben's essay suggests that there is a valuable dialogue between them uh, that should be preserved. That has, of course, been a recurring theme uh, in the Bradley Center's work as well. We're still putting the panel together, uh, but one of its members will be Patty Stonecipher, one of those rare individuals who executed a reverse career commute between the worlds of philanthropy and community uh, and charity, moving from the presidency of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, to directing the local D.C. nonprofit Martha's Table. As I say, November 4. It's election day, I understand that, but that's always a, an ominously quiet eye of the electoral storm. Uh, so come and ponder a topic that will get your minds off the uh, evening's coming tumult. Uh, although it must be said that in recent years, electoral activity and nonprofits have not seemed so far apart, uh, which is why today's panel is a timely conversation uh, about an increasingly common problem. Uh, namely the lack of legal clarity when it comes to legally permissible political activity by charitable organizations. Public Citizen has been working on this problem for some time and in May of 2013 released a set of six proposed rules which were designed to clarify the IRS regulations governing political activity uh, by nonprofit organizations. Uh, today's panel, I should, I should be very clear about this, today's panel isn't going to be a, a discussion in detail uh, of the, the wisdom or lack of wisdom of those recommendations, uh, but will rather seek to assess the public's receptiveness or perhaps even eagerness uh, for reform in this area through a survey uh, that I will now uh, ask our distinguished panelists to discuss. We will hear first today from the, from the two pollsters who conducted the survey, one a prominent Democrat, the other a prominent Republican. Our first speaker will be Celinda Lake of Lake Research Partners. Uh, our, then we'll hear from Robert Carpenter of Chesapeake Bay Consulting. So, I'm sorry, Chesapeake Beach Consulting. 
Uh, we'll then move to Lisa Gilbert, uh, Director of Congress Watch at Public Citizen, and we'll close with John Tyler, General Counsel for the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. So, Salinda. Well, thank you very much. It's delightful to be here, and uh, I want to say I am so pleased to be doing this poll uh, bipartisanly with my colleague, uh, Bob Carpenter. We've worked together. Uh, our firms have worked together for decades, uh, but this is truly a bipartisan issue, so it should be reflected uh, by bipartisan polling. And I'm always uh, delighted to work with Public Citizen. They have long been uh, a colleague and a friend of our firms and do incredibly important work. So this is a survey that we conducted July 26th through 29th. The margin of error is plus or minus 3.5%. Uh, it's 800 likely 2014 general election voters. Uh, so the first thing we looked at was what do people think about this general concept? And we found that more than 8 and 10 voters think it's important to have clear rules in place concerning the political activities that nonprofit organizations can and cannot do. And two-thirds of the voters, almost two-thirds of the voters, feel that it is very, very important. Bob will talk about this more, but if you're looking for bipartisan consensus, while the elites may be divided, the voters are united. And in fact, every demographic and political group thought this issue was important, and every demographic and political group uh, supported the kind of change. So 86% thought it was important. 57% thought it was very important. These are surprisingly high numbers, honestly, for what is probably a fairly new issue to people and a process issue, and when people are not short of problems in their minds. They are worried about jobs. They're worried about education. They're worried about health care. They're worried about retirement. So, frankly, we were surprised uh, at the intensity and the height of the concern. We then asked uh, voters, do you favor or oppose uh, changing uh, the way nonprofit organization activities are regulated to establish more clear and fair rules, rules for what is counted as a political activity? And... Um, Support, again, for these changes was remarkably high, given this is a brand new issue to people, and remarkably across the board. 49% of the voters said they favored these changes, 34% uh, strongly favoring them, only 10% opposed them, and 41% said, I'm not sure about how I feel, which is not surprising, given the fact that um, this is a very technical area to be asking the public how they feel. A transparency requirement was extremely popular as well. And in fact, we're seeing across the board uh, transparency being a, and accountability being very, very, very strong concepts right now with the American public. So nearly two-thirds of the voters, 63%, said they felt more favorable toward new rules that include disclosure. And again, as Bob will discuss, this was bipartisanly true across every demographic and political group. So 63% more favorable, 40% much more favorable, 
only 8% less favorable. And remember, the error here is plus or minus 3.5%. So 4% of this poll thinks that Bob Carpenter is president of the United States. So uh, basically, <laughs> no one was less favorable toward this position. And only, uh, and only 29% uh, said, I don't know how I feel about this idea. And again, what we're seeing is that transparency in general is a very, very, very strong concept right now. And people like public disclosure, and they don't think there's enough of it going on. The last thing we did is we said, okay, this is a technical area, and often when you're polling on technical areas, we find that it depends very much on how you word the questions. So we said, let's, in, let's develop an engaged debate and see how the public feels about this when we're arguing our side versus their side. So we argued we need clear rules and standards versus this proposal for, uh, restricts Americans' right of free speech, which is the argument that has been put out there. On our side, we argued the absence of clear rules governing what counts as political activity allows special interests and big money groups to rig the system. This allows corporations and wealthy special interests to hide money and secretly influence elections. We need clear rules and standards to pull back the curtain so that the source of the money is transparent. The public has the right to know who's influencing elected officials. Lots of strong language in there. The idea of rigging the system, referring to campaign finance reform, um, pull back the curtain, let the public know, and the rigging of elections, all very, very strong. On the other side, though, uh, we were no slouches. We had a very strong argument as well. And we said the last thing we need is to give the government more power to restrict American citizens' right of free speech. But that's exactly what this proposal does. It gives more power to the bureaucratic IRS, which targets our enemies, limits our free speech, and will stifle the activities of well-meaning nonprofits. This proposal is another layer of red tape and abuse that we don't need. So we said the dreaded G word, government. We said the dreaded IRS. We said waste, fraud, abuse, red tape, bureaucracy. And we held it up against free speech, which is a very, very powerfully held a norm with the public. In that debate, the we need clear rules and standards got 60% of the public. This proposal restricts Americans' right of free speech got 27%. And only 13% said, I don't know which side I, I feel more strongly about. So there is a very, very strong sense here in the public that this is an important issue. This is another example of abuses that are going on out there. We need clear rules. We need more transparency. And that this, this lack of clear rules and lack of transparency is actually inhibiting the right of ordinary people to have their free speech and their vote. So let me turn it over to Bob to talk more about the bipartisan nature and some of the details. Thank you, Salinda. It's, it's always a pleasure to um, participate in a survey with Salinda. We've, uh, as she mentioned, we've done it for um, decades, which makes us both. We started in kindergarten. There you go. <laughs> yes. Um, though I, I, every time I do something with Salinda, I find out a little bit more about her. And I, up to this point, I thought she liked me, but now she's making me be president, which is kind of a nightmare. <laughs> um, let me uh, let me talk a little bit about the bipartisan. Um, responses that we found, but also get into some of the question wording a little bit. And as Celinda mentioned, um, the 8 and 10 voters that, that um, think it's important to have clear rules in place um, was very bipartisan. 87% of Democrats, 84% of independents, 
and 88% of Republicans. So very, very strong numbers for uh, across the partisan um, spectrum for clear rules in place. And we asked the question two different ways. The, the wording of the question um, was switching topics, as you, may, as you may know, some types of nonprofit organizations are not allowed to support or oppose candidates for public office, but can engage in nonpartisan activities like voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote efforts. And then we asked them how important we thought they thought having clear rules in place. That was the phrase of one of the first question. Half the uh, respondents got that. The other half got the same basic question with, with four words added, switching topics, as you may know, some types of nonprofit organizations, which are tax-exempt, and then the question continued. Both of those very high numbers, 84% for the first one, 88% for the second one, and the bipartisanship was very um, apparent on both of them. 80, 86 versus 87 among Democrats, 83 versus 85 among independents, and 85 versus 90 among Republicans. So again, very, very strong numbers. And Celine and I both do a lot of candidate work, and, and we know um, the candidates would love to get 85% of the vote. Um, and, and some do, but again, I, I like to say when I'm doing a, a polling presentation, Think of these in terms of candidate support when you're, think, when you're looking at numbers. And, you know, a candidate would be happy with 55%. A candidate would be thrilled with 85%. Um, we also um, asked several other – asked the questions, as Celinda mentioned, several other ways um, and talked about regulating the charities and nonprofit organizations in terms of what they can do in uh, political activity. And again, we asked the question two different ways to see if there was any difference in the responses, and there wasn't. The, uh, the first way we asked the question, the Internal Revenue Service is in charge of regulating what these charities and nonprofit organizations are permitted to do when it comes to political activity. Some people have proposed to change the way nonprofit organizations' activities are regulated to establish more clear and fair rules for what is counted as political activity. Would you favor or oppose this change, or are you not sure? To that... 49% favor, 10% oppose, 41% are unsure. Even with the IRS being mentioned as the, um, the regulator, when we asked the question, the government is in charge of regulating these charities, so we swapped out IRS for government, equally strong numbers, 48% favor, 10% oppose, 42% are unsure. Very little space between the, uh, the partisans on this. Um, for the first one, 53 uh, among the Democrats, 56 for the uh, IRS versus government among Democrats, 50 versus 50 among independents, 46 versus 40 among Republicans. So a slight drop with Republicans on this question, though they favored by a margin of 46 to 40 that the, uh, the IRS over the government, which is, is um, somewhat interesting. Um, in terms of the, um, the other issues that we looked at and the other, the other questions, again, we, we continue to see very, very little space between the partisans. Um, in terms of, of the question, um, part of the change would involve uh, more certainty. The sources of the funding are disclosed. 63% were favorable to that, 66 Democrats, 62 Independents, 61 Republican. So, again, very, very little 
difference there. Um, and finally, um, we, uh, Celinda mentioned the, the two statements that were read about the absence of clear rules versus the free speech argument. And what we saw there was um, <coughs> finally some divide between partisans. Um, 60% overall favored the, um, the absence of clear rules is a problem versus 27% the free speech argument. 71 versus 18 among Democrats, 61-26 among independents, and 49-37 among Republicans. So while the Republican number was, was significantly lower than the Democratic number, we still had a plurality of Republicans saying we need clear rules. The free speech argument is, um, is trumped by, by that. Um, <coughs> so with that, let me, um, let me stop and um, turn it over, I believe, to Lisa. And we'll be happy to take your questions when, uh, at the appropriate time. Great. Thanks so much, Bob and Celinda. It's fabulous to be here at this important bipartisan event. Uh, I'm Lisa Gilbert, Director of Public Citizen's Congress Watch Division. Uh, Public Citizen is a membership-based national organization, and our mission is to take on powerful interests on behalf of the American public. As part of that work, we engage in a number of types of good government work, uh, including housing the Bright Lines Project, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, the Bright Lines Project is intended to redefine political intervention for tax-exempt entities with a set of safe harbors and clear bright lines. Uh, the work on this project began almost five years ago, is spearheaded by a drafting committee of prominent tax attorneys, several of whom are here with us today, uh, and is currently focused on the important ongoing IRS rulemaking. Uh, rulemaking in this area is long overdue, and we believe it's important for three main reasons. Uh, first, by clarifying the definition of political intervention, we will enable more nonprofits to participate in nonpartisan political activities safely as they gain more understanding of what they can and cannot do. Uh, secondly, we'll deal with some of the abuses of the system, uh, as a few groups continue to try to game the tax code, seeking to use large, undisclosed donations to manipulate election outcomes. And finally, Brightline rules will relieve the IRS from having to figure out if political organizations or if nonprofits are doing political work, uh, really based on no clearer criteria than knowing political activity when they see it. Uh, the IRS's work right now uh, to promulgate a rule in this area is an attempt to create a clear standard, a bright line standard, a definition for political activity in this space. And as such, we really applaud it. Uh, they're working to remedy the uncertainty of the current all the facts and circumstances standard, uh, which is the test that the IRS uses right now to try to determine on a case-by-case -case basis uh, whether nonprofit activity is political or not. Uh, and though the initial proposal that the agency came out with earlier this year did have some serious flaws, uh, we're very encouraged that Commissioner Koskinen has made clear that the IRS is working to fix those flaws and that they uh, will be reproposing the new rules early in the new year. Uh, again, we think the need for these rules is really obvious. Uh, the polling readout just told us that the public agrees and they support this type of clarity uh, that the rules will bring. Uh, in addition, Public Citizen's own analysis of the non-form comments to the first rule proposal, which we did in May, tells us that of the 245 unique organizations that commented to the agency, 67% used their comment to call for the rules to be revised or for hearings. And this statistic ranged across party lines. Uh, among the commenters, 
because there was agreement about the initial flaws in the first proposal, uh, but also agreement that there's a need to fix the current problematic system that the IRS is using via a strong revised rule. Uh, the Bright Lines Project's comment was also squarely within that camp. Uh, we want the rulemaking to continue, but we also found flaws in the first proposal as it was issued. We want to see it improved. Uh, so I just wanted to flag two concerns that we had with the initial proposal that we hope will be addressed in the upcoming reproposal next year. Uh, first, uh, the first proposal applied only to one type of tax-exempt entity, uh, to 501c4 social welfare organizations. Uh, we worry that defining political activity differently for different sorts of tax-exempt entities uh, will create inconsistencies as well as potentially drive organizations to reincorporate as different sorts of 501cs uh, to avoid any kind of new, brighter line definition. Uh, a second problem I wanted to flag is that uh, in an effort to get as far as possible from the vagueness of the current facts and circumstances test, uh, the IRS went to the polar opposite direction uh, and labeled whole categories of civic engagement as political candidate-related activity. Uh, so the result of that is that the first draft uh, swept in uh, a bunch of activities that can be truly nonpartisan, like voter registration and voter guides. Uh, so, again, we are really encouraged that the IRS and Treasury are moving forward with these rules. Uh, it's an important space, and we're looking to them to significantly rework the draft rules before they release their new version next year. Uh, we hope that the agencies lean on the Bright Lines Project's drafting to do so. Uh, we think that our principles create a clear and objective definition uh, of, free sp of speech, uh, protect civic engagement, and will create safe harbors. Uh, I'll close just by saying that we're really excited about the possibilities for bipartisan cooperation that uh, events like this one, a poll release here at Hudson Institute, really represent. Uh, we hope the IRS knows that they have the support that they need to develop a comprehensive and clear definition for political activity, uh, in addition to hopefully dealing with other topics like how much activity these groups should do uh, and to whom or which type of organization these definitions should apply. Uh, thanks so much. I'll look forward to questions and uh, turn it over to John. Good afternoon. I suppose that uh, many of you are veterans of the Bradley Center events, and as you know, uh, the Bradley Center events would not be Bradley Center events without a provocative and hopefully constructive uh, viewpoint, and given this panel, I think that's my role uh, here today. Uh, given that my comments and my observations have not been vetted by uh, by either my employer or any of the organizations for boards that I, I serve on those boards. Uh, nothing I say should be attributed to anybody but me. Uh, <clears throat> so jumping in. Exempt organizations have a long history in the United States of voter engagement. They were at the forefront of the women's suffrage movement and the civil rights movement. Their historic exempt organizations are both historic and current sources of important and useful information for voters, for those who have a, are, are stakeholders in the organizations, and for the public generally. The types of engagement range from hosting uh, debates, presidential debates most notably, uh, producing and disseminating voter guides, hosting candidate forums, and any number of other ways that exempt organizations uh, engage. Uh, as such, exempt organizations are an essential part of civil society. They are critical to the functioning of civil society, most notably because exempt organizations are fundamentally expressions of 
and mechanisms for exercise of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. Free speech and free assembly are, uh, are not just incidental to our democratic republic. They are uh, essential. They are innate. They are inherent in the ability of our democratic republic to function. As a result, there is and must be opportunities for civic engagement by exempt organizations, uh, with voters and even with candidates. We can't or shouldn't have rules that effectively remove exempt organizations from civil society because doing so uh, can and will disenfranchise many and undermine these inherent principles of the democratic republic. The Bright Lines Project is, I think, a thoughtful and diligent effort to balance various perspectives and values. Uh, and there's much to admire about the project and its approach to addressing various issues. But one of the problems that, uh, that we are facing, uh, not with Bright Lines Project, but, but for instance with the current legal environment for C4s, is you know, the appearance of unbounded discretion in the IRS as far as determining whether an organization is exempt or not, and in determining whether or not an organization is complying with regulations. So on one hand, unbounded uh, discretion is a threat to civic engagement. On sort of the other hand, and Lisa sort of alluded to this with the proposed regulations that came out of, uh, the, of Treasury, uh, you know, there are degrees to which there's absolute certainty about that engagement. When you look at those regulations, any type of engagement by an, uh, uh, an exempt organization by C4, given the, the letter of the regulations, any type of mentioning a candidate is forbidden. It's unlawful intervention. Uh, that's pretty clear. Those regs were very clear. So the problem with the regulations was not necessarily the lack of clarity or even you know, whether they were fair. Not only were the regulations clear as far as what's allowed and what's not allowed, uh, they applied across the board. So they were both clear and fair. So given that, and by the way, I don't agree with the regulations. I think that the regulations uh, would have, have created huge amounts of problems, not just for C4s, but for C3s, given the likelihood that there would have been migration to the C3 area. So given that, as it relates to the survey and uh, you know, the, the clear preferences for clarity that, that the survey shows, and given the fact that the proposed regulations and now withdrawn regulations were clear, I'm not sure where the value add is uh, from the survey. And, and I say that you know, for, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, that the survey actually seems to suffer from some of its own ambiguities, some of its own lack of clarity. And uh, second, uh, as, as was already talked about a little bit, but I want to drill down a little bit more, some of the questions seem to be uh, biased towards a particular result. So let's start with the ambiguity, uh, or, or ambiguities about the survey. Uh, clarity can go in a whole host of different directions. So is clarity for its own sake what the public wants, or do they want clarity 
that is, uh, is meaningful. And, I'm not sh- and this survey doesn't answer that question. Uh, you know, clar- like I said, you, you can have clarity about n- no mentioning candidates you know, within 30 or 60 days of an election. That's clear. But that's also harmful. So what do they mean by clarity? Is, and is clarity, uh, you know, for its own sake? Uh, you know, there, there's some ambiguity around that. There's also, then you can get to clarity at what cost, at what cost to civic engagement. So the proposed regulations were clear, and they undermined civic engagement by exempt organizations. So, uh, you know, based on the survey, it's almost as if it could be read that clarity at any cost is acceptable. And so the ambiguity about where does clarity fit relative to other factors and other values uh, becomes an issue. There are also, um, you know, some, some things where there's lack of clarity. Uh, you know, not only do we need definitions about what is political intervention or candidate-related activity and, you know, the other synonyms that are, are floating around, but how much is too much? Is it 49%? Is it 15%? Is it 85%? Uh, and and there, there's no discussion of that. So there's actually ambiguity around the question of how much is too much or, or what does the public think about how much is too much. Now, it, this, the survey didn't go in that direction, so I, uh, it's just to point out you know, there, there are important gaps in the regulatory environment. That's, that's one of them. Uh, the, uh, and and uh, both of the surveyors, you know, uh, Celinda and Bob, mentioned this question, question 15 and 16, where there was a substantial number, 41 and 42 percent, of people who responded that they don't know or they're not sure. Um, and I think Celinda's uh, you know, explanation of that is, is right. This is a complicated area. And so it would be expected that a large number of people might say they don't know or they aren't sure. But that lack of knowledge or that lack of an opinion has to mean something. And I'm not, I, I don't know what it means, but, uh, but I think it's got to mean something more than uh, and, and people aren't sure on that question. How does, you know, for instance, how does the response to that question compare and measure against a question where there maybe there was more certainty? Can you get to consistent results, or are they uh, potentially inherently inconsistent? And I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it seems like it, it's something that, that needs to be uh, considered. So that's, uh, you know, one uh, hopefully constructive observation about the ambiguities in in the survey. The second has to do with some of what I think might be uh, biases in in the survey. Most particularly, the questions around uh, choosing free speech or or clarity. And when you, uh, you know, the the protocol for that was they, they read the statements and then if somebody said, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or neither of these, or both of these, the surveyors asked them, encouraged them by saying, well, which statements comes closer to your views? As if to encourage uh, 
pick one or the other, and the, the third, I don't know, or both, or neither, is not really a good option. Now, there are reports of both neither and don't know, but there was an affirmative effort to move people off of, uh, off of that, that position. And then as, uh, uh, as Celinda read the, the, the responses and the positions, I guess I would disagree with her about whether uh, A and B, clarity versus free speech, are equally weighted in the use of incendiary language. Uh, the clear rules language included rig the system, and, and Celinda pointed to all these. So rig the system versus restrict American citizens' right of free speech. Secretly influence election, a bureaucratic IRS. Pull back the curtain, layers of red tape and abuse. Influencing elected officials, IRS will stifle the activities of well-meaning nonprofits. Now, I juxtapose them as if they are juxtaposed. They're really not juxtaposed in, in the questions. But to try to point in, in my mind, the, the clear rules uh, incendiary language is much harsher, much sharper than the free speech language. And particularly when one of the survey questions it relates to the IRS stifling the activities of well-meaning nonprofits, most of the people surveyed didn't view nonprofits being stifled as a problem that anybody's wrestling with. They asked a couple of questions about what, what are your, your, your views on whether uh, exempt organizations or public charities are uh, not speaking out or afraid to speak out or afraid to engage. And most people didn't view that as a problem. So, and, and, you know, in fairness to the surveyors, they didn't know that when they're designing the survey. So when they're crafting the language around the free speech, they didn't know that most of the survey respondents would not consider stifling the activities of well-meaning nonprofits to actually it's, it's not a loaded question uh, given the surveyors. Uh, so there are many reasons that the proposed regulations fell short, and there were many reasons, uh, good reasons, for them to have been withdrawn. Uh, I do think that one of the good outcomes from, uh, from the proposed regulations was it got a lot of people's attention. Some 150,000 or more uh, you know, responses, that's civic engagement. That's, that's policy engagement. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And then when the government looks at the responses and then withdraws, and says, we hear you, we're going we're gonna to start over again. That's a good thing. That's the way civil society is, is supposed to work. So there are many reasons that the regulations fell short. There are also many reasons to appreciate the work of the Bright Lines Project, uh, you know, as I mentioned before. What I'm not sure about is whether this survey either substantively uh, serves as a substantive, effective substantive critique of the regulations or even substantively moves the ball for the Bright Line Project. All right, thank you very much. Uh, maybe we can let our, our other panelists respond to, to what, what John had to say. And, and uh, you know, I, when I read the survey, uh, when I read the survey results, and knowing, you know, something about public opinion in the sector, which is, 
you know, the public is pretty vague. You know, heck, congressmen are pretty vague on the difference between 501c3s and c4s and, you know, the degree to which nonprofits of various kinds can engage in political activity. You know, is, is, the, is this outpouring of sentiment in favor of clarity um, a result of just sort of a, a general inclination to like good things, i.e. clarity, uh, or does it, does it reflect something deeper than that? I guess that would be the, the general question. So uh, let me give a, and both of us I think would like to respond, let me give a, and thank you, John, for your good comments and provocative comments. Um, first of all, I think um, a couple of things. We're not attempting to measure the bright line specific agenda or the rules or anything like that. Uh, what we're trying to get at is what are the core values underneath? What are the core orientations that people have that they're going to use to respond? And we also combine with this polling, other polling that we're doing in other areas. And so we know, for example, that people think there is a problem, that special interests are rigging the elections and they're coming at it from a lot of hidden ways. We know from other work we've done that people are very, very upset about the campaign finance money and the way it's spent. Uh, we know that people want disclosure and transparency. Uh, and we know that in general, uh, people think that there's a lot of rigging and backdooring and loopholes and in just in general, and it kind of goes to your question, in general, people want support uh, for rules that are applied more fairly and for rules that are um, clearer. Um, so just to answer a couple of specific questions, and, and then I'll turn it over to my colleague to expand on them. Um, in terms of the initial, we didn't, we didn't test the principal clarity. Uh, and I agree, um, if we had tested that, it would have had some of the same critiques. We said the lack of clearly defined rules for what is treated as political activity and what is not. So we tried to get a little more concrete. And... Um, and I think people, yeah, people want clarity for clarity's sake. And they want it across a variety of arenas, in part because they think the lack of clarity leads to abuse. And they also think the lack of clarity makes it very, very hard to enforce things. Um, the second thing is uh, the clarity at what cost. And what we tried to do in the survey was go from the general to the specific. So ask how important is this? Do you um, support or not this change? And would you be more favorable if it had disclosure? And then the clarity at what cost, that's the attempt of the our side, their side argument to suggest what costs. The IRS is coming in. They're going to hound your local Boys and Girls Club. Um, and the one thing I really would strongly disagree with is um, the a notion that these statements weren't weighted uh, I mean, just throwing IRS in anything. I mean, saying, you know, we're going to celebrate the 4th of July with the IRS would depress the feelings about the 4th of July significantly for the public. So uh, I think that, um, you know, uh, government regulation, bad, you know, red tape, th these are not minor. And free speech. Free speech is the number one thing that people like. Uh, it's one of the reasons they want more more campaign finance reform because they don't think it's free speech. They think it's paid speech. So I would disagree that this wasn't um, – that we didn't have equally loading on both sides. How much is too much? Absolutely great question. And I'm not sure the public would be able to answer it 
because honestly, then we're starting to get into a level of detail that I just don't think they have the information for. Uh, really good point about where were those 41% who were undecided. And, you know, as you said, in the positioning we pushed people in the do you support or not changing the rules, we did not push people mm -hmm. uh, deliberately. And that's part of why we got such a high don't know. Both the people who favor the regs and the people who weren't sure were more favorable toward disclosure. And we didn't put this in the memo, so there's no reason anyone would know this except us, and it's a really good question. And the people who both favored the regulation and didn't know, but, you know, uh, agreed with our side in the debate. So super good question. Where did those, those don't knows go on the other questions? And what does it tell us about where their broader inclinations are? And I think the answer is uh, where they went on the follow-up questions tells us that they were leaning toward our side. But this is a complicated area, and people just aren't as sure how they feel about it. We also saw, you know, as you might expect, some uh, people with less education, lower information, less partisanship being more in the don't know because just less familiar with what we're talking about. And in that question, we didn't push people to give us an answer. So let me turn it over to Bob yeah, for additional comments. Sure. Let me, let me make a couple of comments. Um, in, in terms of the issue of clarity, I, in my mind, the public was pretty clear. We, again, we asked the question, how important do you think it is to have clear rules in place governing the political activities that organizations like these can and cannot do? 84% said it was important. 84% believe that it's important to have clear rules in place. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how, how we could have rephrased that to, to um, make it any clearer that, uh, of the importance. In, in terms of the, um, the don't knows to question 15 and 16, as, as John mentioned, um, we would need to go back and look at the crosstabs to see where they were and where they went on other questions, where those, those don't knows went. But as Celinda suggested, the, the strong numbers throughout this section of the survey um, tell me that, that they're probably on the side of, of greater um, uh, disclosure and that they're on the side of, of um, favoring some sort of IRS action. In, in terms of the IRS uh, or the, the, the bias nature of the um, uh, he said, she said, if you will, um, you know, as Celinda mentioned, I'm not sure how we could have um, structured that question to make it um, less biased. If anything, I think that the, the opposition argument is probably, if there's a bias in, in the question, I think it's probably in favor of the the opposition of the free speech side, because again, restrict Americans' right of free speech gives more power to the bureaucratic IRS, uh, which target our enemies, limits free speech, stifle the activity of well-meaning nonprofits, another layer of red tape and abuse. It's a pretty loaded up um, series of statements, and any time. We, we try to do a, you know, some people say, other people say, or, um, you know, opponents feel this way, supporters feel this way. Um, we, we go out of our way to balance 
the statements so that that we're reducing bias if there is any to the smallest amount and questions like these tend to be difficult for in in my experience and I would suggest that Celinda probably would agree with me but in my experience questions like these are often hard for the client to handle because they want they know what their side is they know what their argument is and they're trying to frame the opposition's argument to in some cases make it weaker now that was not the case in in with with this survey public citizen gave us you know the the authority and the the free reign to craft this question um, or these these series of questions but oftentimes you have a the 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 client will want to write the opposition argument from their point of view and we as pollsters have to say to them it's not your argument it's their argument Mm -hmm. and so oftentimes we're pulling a statement or series of statements directly off the opposition's website or or from some sort of comments that they have made and it's it's you know it's difficult for us to get that by some clients and I think in this case um, we did a pretty good job and um, the client public citizen in this case allowed us to do that I don't know that that the the opposition statement if you will is something that that public citizen necessarily wanted out there I mean why would they be be saying that this proposal restricts free speech um, but that's what the opposition is saying. So that's what we—that's the way we had to craft it. And finally, let me just say that you know, Celinda mentioned um, the IRS and um, the the negativity surrounding that. And you know, I, I could do a survey tonight, which said Santa Claus works for the IRS, and I could get Santa Claus to have an unfavorable rating <laughs> by a margin of probably two or three to one. Um, so the IRS is—you know—it's it's an inflammatory term and uh, that's one of the reasons we we used it because it's it's out there the irs is involved um and um you know just to to wrap up i think that we made every effort um to make these that that particular question as unbiased as we possibly could um and you know it's it's half of my product, so I think we did a pretty good job. <laughs> the better. <laughs> yeah. Lisa, did you want to say anything? Um, I mean, not to weigh in on any of the specifics, I think yeah. Bob and Slinda did a great job uh, explaining how we crafted the questions and certainly how we figured out the opposition arguments um, that were used in the questions. Uh, you know, as I mentioned in my remarks, we don't think the first proposed reg is perfect. There were lots of problems with it, and one of them was this trade-off clarity at what cost the Mm -hmm. cost of civic (laughs) engagement and so certainly we want the next version of the rules to fix that Um, and we didn't need to to test how the public felt about that because certainly if we asked them you know if it would be a good thing to make it harder to do voter registration or voter guides we know what we would get Um, instead we wanted to test how strongly they feel about the need for these rules Um, and it turns out they feel very strongly which Mm -hmm. we thought was great and and helpful hopefully to the IRS and, and Treasury as they move forward I had, uh, I mean, I could repeat my speech, but I won't. I did have one question for uh, for Robin Salinda. In the uh, free speech option, there's this, and I, I just don't understand the the question so or, or the comment. 
it gives more power to the bureaucratic IRS, which I do understand that part, which targets our enemies. So what's the uh, – who, who is our – who are our enemies in the IRS targeting them? And how would the respondents have vetted that, that, that part of this? I just – I didn't understand that. You know, it's a good question, and uh, in retrospect, honestly, as you were making your comments, because I noticed that you emphasized that when you were talking, I was thinking, you know, that that is a good place where, uh, I mean, you know, the opposition talks about the enemies list and putting everybody on the enemies list and all that, uh, but I, I kind of agree with you. I think that probably could have been uh, better worded. Um, interestingly, if it had been very confusing to people, we would have had a lot more people in don't know, and we didn't. Um, but I think it's, you know, honestly, if I had it to do over again, that's the one part I would tweak uh, as well, frankly. I, I, I would just add to Celinda's comments that the, the, the targeting our enemies statement is is certainly a reference to um, the alleged activities of the IRS with regard to conservative organizations. Yeah. And um, so including that, um, you know, and, and again, this is being read to somebody over the phone. So they're, they're not necessarily hearing every single word. They don't have it in front of us like, like – they don't have it in front of them like we do. It's not something that we sent to them and let them read through it and think about it and respond. We read them a, a statement of probably 100-plus words and asked for their, um, you know, vote, if you will, statement A or statement B. Um, so focusing on two or three words in a 100-word question is not the way that the respondent is, is hearing it. But, the, but back to the target our enemies, I think that that was a direct reference to the, mm -hmm. the activities of, of the IRS of late. I mean, it was meant to tap into that. What we were trying to do is put in hot buttons for the other side, mm -hmm. um, and that was the intention. But again, I think in, in retrospect, we probably could have worded it a little bit better. All right. Let's go to audience Q&A. Uh, but before we do, I, I neglected to mention Emily Peterson Casson's contribution to this uh, panel. She's uh, – was our counterpart over at Public Citizen as we organized this and was the driving force actually behind it. So thank you, Emily, for all that you did for this panel. Yes, Scott. Oh, uh, the usual rules apply, which is please wait patiently for the microphone to arrive. Speak very directly into the microphone and state your name and affiliation. Uh, I'm Scott Walter at the Capital Research yes. Center. Good. And, um, First, I wanted to second uh, Bill's initial comment, which is that, uh, of course, about whether people know the difference, say, between C3 and C4. I mean, U.S. senators sitting in hearings to reform the charity laws make it painfully clear they don't know the difference between C3s and C4s. And I think it's a shame pollsters so rarely ask people a knowledge question instead of in addition to the opinion questions because the incredible ignorance on this would perhaps suggest whether citizens, in fact, do care that much about these things as, as we're pretending they do uh, in this meeting. 
But my, my question is to Ms. Lake, though. If I understood you correctly, you, you made the point about how uh, the question, vo voters support changing IRS rules, got a very big don't know, not sure, 41% here. And yet I see at the end of the press release from Public Citizen about this, uh, quotation from Selinda Lake, the voters are speaking with a unified voice in favor of new rules. Uh, isn't that an overstatement by far, if uh, almost half admit they don't know and aren't sure? Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, let me speak to your initial point about knowledge versus and measuring knowledge. Uh, first of all, in this case, we, wouldn't, we don't need to measure knowledge <laughs> because you're right. Nobody's got any. Um, and so, you know, that would have been a bad use of public citizens polling dollars. Um, if, if we would have agreed to do that, we should have been fired. Um, the other thing, honestly, as a firm, and I, and I don't know where Bob's from. We haven't had a chance to talk about this. Our firm doesn't really like to ask knowledge questions that much because, and it goes back to something that Bob said, think about it. The average person is not sitting down with their iPad and their Encyclopedia Britannica right in front of them focused on this. The average person is grabbing our pole because they just took dinner off the burner. The kids are doing their homework. The dog has just come in with a cat in his mouth. And we're asking them, how do you feel about the IRS rules? Uh, or her. And so, um, you know, this is a very distracted. And what you get is you get college-educated people doing significantly better than non-college-educated people on um, – and younger people doing better on knowledge questions than older people. Maybe some of that's true, but I think a lot of that is artifact of, you know, cognitive skills, the setting that we're in, et cetera. So we don't particularly like to ask knowledge questions. More important, though, is we have a very fundamental belief in our business, which is if the facts don't fit the frame, people reject the facts, not the frame. Now, that may be deeply disappointing to people in this room who are fact-oriented, but facts don't matter that much. It's the core values, and that's what we were trying to get at here. In terms of the overwhelming support, you know, it's a good point about how that quote sounds out of context, and, uh, and it's a fair critique. I, you know, it was intended to be in the context of the memo, and so what we were trying to say there uh, but I'm not defending the wording. It could have perhaps been more artfully uh, constructed, is to say that other people who had opinions, there's overwhelming support. There's overwhelming support. And, and, you know, frankly, we were flabbergasted by the importance question. In fact, as Lisa can tell you, we didn't want to ask the importance question. Uh, we argued against asking it because we thought, you know, there's jobs out there. There's terrorism. There's ISIS. There's health care costs. And you want to ask how important this is? Um, and also people are so cynical right now because of the campaigns going on. Uh, so we didn't even want to ask that question. And I'm personally flabbergasted at the level of, and it's because this whole area is tapping into a very big concern that is out there right now, which that special interests are rigging the system. And, uh, this, and that, you know, we don't even know about it. We don't even understand it. There's lack of clarity. They're getting in the back door. They're getting in the front door. They're getting in the side door. They're knocking down the door. They're tunneling in. Uh, and, you know, why can't we get this system straightened away and fair and clear and public? Um, but I think, you know, what our intention was to say that there's very little opposition. Uh, that was really the intent of that quote. But good point when out of context. I mean, I think when it's, at the end of all that data, then it's clear what it means, but out of context, it could be misinterpreted. Yeah. Other questions? 
This gentleman right down in front. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rubinowitz. I'm retired. And uh, it turns out poll results, as has been mentioned many times, poll results depend very strongly on how the questions are worded. But they also depend on the order the questions are asked, uh, the precise script that's used, and on a phone it depends on the voice of the interviewer and the tone of voice and how the uh, participants are selected. Uh, an awful lot of people, especially young people, don't have listed phone numbers because cell phones are not listed. And uh, so results of polls almost always support the position of whoever was commissioning the poll. I'm just, almost always, really. And uh, the question is, have there been other polls on this question by other organizations, and how have their results compared with yours? So a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I guess you haven't been, uh, publicly released polls may almost always support the positions <laughs> of the organization <laughs> that's releasing them. But I would respectfully say you haven't been into a lot of that's Bob and Celinda briefings. Um, and in fact, a, a rival polling firm of ours on the Democratic side once said to one of my favorite congressmen, whom you may know, uh, Pat Williams, the ex-congressman from Montana, great progressive, uh, and the accusation was made, Celinda's data is always positive. And he said, have you ever been behind a closed-door briefing with her? Because that's not true. So it's not true that the data is always good news. Um, and, in, and in fact, honestly, you know, th this data has a variety of findings. I mean, 41% don't know. It, you know, uh, that's a high number. Uh, and it suggests the malleability here of the public. Um, so we did include cells, uh, so that's a very good question that you're asking. This is likely registered voters in of the 2014 electorate. So it's tend to be an older electorate to begin with. Um, it, we also pay a lot of attention to procedures. We monitor the calling every night to get at the tone because you're right, the tone. We have a very highly trained, diverse set of interviewers. Um, so we're trying to control for all of that. To answer your specific question, I don't know of any other. I'm not saying there hasn't been, but I'm not aware, and I don't know, Lisa and Bob may be able, I'm not, I'm not aware of any other polling in this area. But yeah. I, I don't know everything that's been done. Yeah, this is the first of its kind, although there has been a lot of polling around democracy issues generally, some yeah. done by these <laughs> firms. If I may, just let me add to two points that Celinda made. Um, one, we... We do make calls to cell phones now because we have to, to get that. It used to be 18 to 29. Now it's probably 18 to 40. If we didn't call cell phones, we wouldn't get that. And the, the number or the percentage of calls that are made to cell phones continually creeps up. Mm -hmm. I think we're up to 25 or 30 percent now, where even four years ago, 15 was the threshold. So we're making more and more calls to cell phones which, you know, as you probably know, are a little more difficult because we can't do the, the computer-generated call. We have to have a live person because of federal law. So there is an increased cost, but we do it because we have to. Because um, we are only as good as our last numbers. Um, and there are plenty of clients that I've had, and I'm sure Celinda have, has had, that didn't like our numbers. And so in their re-election or their next election, we weren't working for them. Um, as Celine pointed out, not all data is good. I had the wife of a congressman call me once and tell me that my numbers were basically crap and that she wanted the poll redone. Oh, and I said, well, I, you know, give me some specifics. 
and um, she continued to go on and on, and um, somehow the conversation got terminated. I still to this day don't know how that happened. But, um, but not all data is good. Not all data is good news. And as, as Celinda said, you know, I mean, we're, we're not going to list the clients that have screamed at us or thrown us out of their office, but we could. Um, and I don't, you know, going into this project, I don't think either one of us expected the, the numbers that we saw in terms of, of the, the super majorities we saw. And I don't know that public citizen yeah. expected that either. Um, but again, you know, we, we put together this instrument um, bipartisan so that, that it did encompass, you know, uh, multiple points of view. We had many people on, on the call. I think in all total there was probably 10, maybe 15 revisions calls of this survey going back and forth involving a lot of different people. Um, but, again, we're only as good as our last numbers. And if, if they're bad, you know, public citizen or any other client's not going to hire us again. Um, they, they want, you know, they're – polling clients – are paying a lot of money to get fair and accurate numbers, and we're not going to inflate them. I mean, I don't, I don't want public citizen to launch an entire campaign on bogus numbers mm -hmm. because that doesn't serve them and it doesn't serve me because they, eventually they're going to come back and they're going to say, we did this and you said that, and, you know, um, I've been doing this for 20-plus years, and, and I, Celinda, probably the same, if not – a year or two more. Um, but, you know, again, we're only as good as our numbers. And um, if, if they're not right, it's, it's going to affect our, maybe not in this campaign, but in a future campaign. Okay, yes, Gary Bass, please. Gary Bass, Bowen Foundation. And it seems some of you in the room may not know the two firms. I do know the two firms, and I'd happily stipulate you are the Cadillac of firms. So uh, the question about methodologies, the questions about the appropriateness of the questions, knowing that you checked the news media to look at all the opposition language that was used, knowing that you look at the data to make sure that there's demographic representation, knowing all that, I want to stipulate you did a great job on the survey itself. Thank you. And we should move on to talk about the implications. Um, it seems to me that uh, we're willing to, I'm willing to buy in that people want clearer rules. That's fine. And John, I'm, I'm also willing to buy into your point, which is how does knowing that um, we want clearer rules, how does that help shape the substantive kind of rules we ultimately want? Mm -hmm. And I think for what the purpose of the poll was, I think it did a fine job which is to start us on the dialogue that says to the IRS, hey, we want clearer rules. The public wants clearer rules. Do this. You have political <coughs> support by the public. Now we have to do the next stage, mm -hmm. which is to have some kind of more technical discussion around what kind of clearer rules make mm -hmm. sense in a society where we want strong, active civic engagement. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think we're in disagreement, but I want to make sure that the substance, the procedure, the mechanisms of the poll cannot be questioned. Thank you. 
Okay. No, no response to that from our, from our panel? <laughs> Other than thank you. Okay, yes. In the back, please. Hi, I'm Richard Skinner at American University, and my question is actually aimed more at Lisa and John. Uh, Lisa, you discussed the growing flow of money into C3 uh, charities, C6 trade associations. There's also some uh, political money going now into limited liability co uh, companies. And I'm wondering if you could comment more broadly about the implications of this for the IRS, for uh, the rules uh, being adopted. Uh, and John, I'd like to know if you think this is a problem. Sure. Uh, I mean, so, you know, we found a number of initial flaws with the first proposal that came out, and I chose to highlight two, and one of them is the issue that you mentioned, which is we don't think it makes sense to have a definition that's different for political intervention for different types of C entities, be it a trade association, a labor union, a charity, because it will create confusion in an already confusing and wonky space. Um, and then also we think that it's possible that uh, organizations will change what they are uh, to avoid what is a clearer, brighter line definition, we hope, in the next rule proposal if it's only applying to C4s. So certainly a concern. Well, and I think that there's a fundamental reality that whatever rules that get put in place ostensibly to cover C4s will migrate into the other areas, uh, so C3, C6, C5s, et cetera. And, uh, you know, w whether directly applicable or not. And so that uh, either needs to be acknowledged on the front end and the rules, you know, uh, uh, applied uh, uniformly. Uh, or it needs to be understood that there's going to be migration and, uh, and people need to pay attention to whatever the rules are that are, are narrower because the end result will likely be that they apply across the board. Is there any, uh, and perhaps building on that question, uh, is there a, a, a broad public concern about the degree of involvement of nonprofits in politics. I mean, in, in a way, the, the, we, we seem, the, the, one of the questions was, and this sort of goes to the point of, you know, you weren't really um, uh, simply parroting the concerns of the folks who hired you to do the surveys. One, some of the questions Ray, you know, asked, do the current rules suppress the ability of nonprofits to uh, express freely their opinions and so forth and so on. And the public seemed to be not particularly stirred by that concern. Uh, and I wonder if it isn't because possibly the public is has the opposite concern, i.e., too many of these groups are too deeply involved. In other words, going directly to the opposite uh, 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 position that Gary Bass would hold, which is that, you know, these these uh, C3s, C4s, and so forth should be more politically engaged, or uh, you know, are they concerned that there's too much political engagement? And and I don't. And you can answer that either from you know something from the survey or just from your personal point of view. So I don't know that we fully explored it, and I would yeah. make a distinction. And maybe I heard Gary differently. So there's civic engagement and there's political activity in real people's minds. 
And, uh, I mean, I think people would be appalled, for example, about any restrictions. And I think you said this, Bob, in your comments, or somebody said this. If we said, you know, this is going to cut back on voter registration, people would be like, absolutely not. Um, so people um, – so I would distinguish between civic engagement and political engagement. Uh, civic engagement people want, you know, even more of. Um and they want to facilitate it. And uh, they think that voting is pretty easy now, mm -hmm. but they like increasing fair access to voting. Uh, we just released earlier today a study that we did on the Voting Rights Act, which was off the charts popular with the public. They thought it was a core provision of the Constitution. They were flabbergasted that it would ever be outdated. It was like saying, well, free speech is outdated, so we're going to revise it. They were just flabbergasted that could happen. They wanted it immediately restored. And the South felt even more strongly about it than any other region in the country. So totally contrary to conventional wisdom. Um, then there's political activity. Uh, people would outlaw political activity tomorrow if they could. They hate candidates. They hate politics. <laughs> they hate political ads. They hate negative advertising. They hate the phone calls that they get late at night, except for polling, of course. Uh, they hate the direct mail and throw it away as fast as they can. Um, need I go on? Yeah. And they think the system's completely supported by dark money. And um, and they think that everybody's getting around it every way they can. And every time they impose restrictions, they get overturned. And they don't think it's free speech. They think it's paid speech. And, you know, my own personal view of it, you can't fool the public all the time. They're right. Um, so now whether or not this whole notion of nonprofits and whether or not people are so clear about what political activities are not nonprofits can engage in, I mean, in general, people think that nonprofits aren't supposed to be that political. Um, which is different than civic engagement again. Mm -hmm. um, and it varies by culture. I mean, African-American, church-going African-Americans think there's nothing, and Catholics think there's nothing wrong with, uh, well, particularly African-American uh, religious people think there's nothing wrong with preaching from the pulpit and having candidates there. Uh, lots of Protestants think, oh, my God, is that even legal? And it's insane, and wouldn't Jesus be upset by it anyway? Um, so, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of differences here. Um um, but I think in general, uh, the distinction that I – the two f core anchors that I think exist out there, at least that we've seen in the data, is one, it, it's great if you could have real civic engagement and more of it. And people getting registered to vote, people participating, people having their say. Two, the system is rigged by big money and groups getting away around every which way to Sunday to spend more money and, and not disclose what it is and drown out the voice of the public. Special interests drown out the voice of the public, and they're damn mad about it because the core principle that voters have is election day is the one day where we're all equal and we all get our say. And people think the system's rigged against that, and they want to tip it back. So those are two core anchor principles that I think apply here. You know, one, of, one of the things that I worry about relative to the question and, and to Celinda's response um, and it goes back to a couple Bill's introductory comment and, and Scott, your observation about people don't know the difference between a C3 and a C4. Uh, start throwing in 527 packs and other things, and uh, you know they don't know the difference between those as well. People don't know that a C5 even exists, much less what it is. And um, and so, but there are fundamental differences, and even using nonprofit or tax-exempt or exempt organizations, uh, when people perceive abuse in the nonprofit sector, 
uh, I worry about whether they're taking it out in their charitable donations to C3 organizations for which there's a charitable deduction. You don't get a charitable deduction by giving to a C4. Uh, so yeah, is there, yeah, I, I am concerned about the effect of perceptions on the charitable sector, uh, you know, with, which doesn't answer the question about should they be able to do more or less. You know, the, the question was you know, framed in terms of, of abuse and the splash into the C3 sector and, and the effect on charitable donations and fundamentally charitable activity um, causes me concerns. Yeah, because the, the, the headlines are always, you know, nonprofits deeply engaged in politics, right, right. which plays directly into your, uh, your, your comment about the aversion of people to political engagement. And they don't understand the nonprofits referred to are C4s, exactly. not C3, so they, yeah, the, the possibility of confusion is very real. Um, more questions from our audience? Come on, Scott, you got to get, I, I know Martin had a question before. Uh, all right, then you cede your question to Scott here, and then we'll go to this gentleman in the, in, well, why don't we go to this gentleman in the back first, and then we'll go back to Scott. Hi, Scott Blackburn with the Center for Competitive Politics. Um, I have a question specifically about the poll, and then more, maybe a more general question. Um, and this last comparison question, uh, the rules and standards versus free speech, um, it references a proposal. Was a proposal read before the question? And then, and, and what exactly was that proposal? The proposal, yes. And the proposal was um, changing the IRS rules. It, it's the question text for the proposal is on page two at the bottom of your memo. Oh, but it was basically some people have proposed changing the way nonprofit activities are regulated to establish more clear and fair rules for what is counted as political activity. And I think this gentleman in front referred to the fact that question order makes a big difference, and he's absolutely right. And the question order is reflected in the memo. So we went from general to, to kind of push question, if you will, or engage debate. So general to specific. Thanks. Uh, more generally, I was wondering, do you think that the FEC should have more of a role in uh, defining political speech? And should the IRS definition of political speech that you push for in new regulations differ from FEC definitions, which are already all, over, all across the board? See that to Lisa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, certainly the FEC has a role in this space, a very important one, a defined one, but so does the IRS. Uh, you know, they need to figure this out as it relates to who is or isn't tax exempt and the enforcement actions that they do. So the definition is incredibly important and we need to get it right for all the reasons we've discussed here today. Uh, certainly, as I mentioned before, consistency is a good thing across this space, um, but I won't go so far as to advocate that it should be the same. There's just a lot of work to be done you know, in both spaces, IRS and FEC, and more discussions that need to happen. Yeah, and, and you know, in thinking about the idea that government regulates the exempt sector as it relates to these activities, or the IRS regulates the, the exempt organizations as it relates to these activities, it isn't just the IRS. The IRS has a role. The FEC has a role. Uh, states and and state, uh, you know, rules and regulations. They have a role, um, and you know, the likelihood of harmonizing everything across the board, uh, I, I think, is unlikely. Hey, more questions. We have time for one more. Scott, 
go ahead. No one, <laughs> no one else seems to want the, the final. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Uh, well, I, I just want to follow up on uh, Ms. Lake's, uh, I suspect, perfectly accurate uh, description that the average American, if you say civic engagement, he goes, hooray, and if you say political engagement, he says, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> uh, but of course, the question is, is that remotely coherent? I, I actually have a question for Ms. Gilbert on this who explicitly said that, you know, well, of course we wouldn't want to get rid of voter registration from C3s. Um, a, I suspect the average American wouldn't necessarily know a C3 can even do um, voter registration. But B, more importantly, uh, can you really name a single 501c3 in America that is genuinely nonpartisan in its voter registration that just <laughs> randomly happens to register people somewhere? Uh, because, of course, now the micro-targeting capacities, especially with folks like Catalyst and whatnot, are unbelievably powerful. And <coughs> I don't think there's a single one that ignores it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it makes sense for me to sit up here naming organizations. I think that there are genuinely groups out there that think about registration for its own sake, that more people voting is a good thing. Uh, that we need more folks registered to make that happen. So it's a it's a good civic engagement is a good in and of itself. So certainly we don't want IRS rules that trample on that. Ironically enough, of course, in this area, right, voter registration is one of the is one of the few things that actually did manage to trigger legislation, right? And back in the uh, uh, after the Cleveland uh, mm -hmm. mayoral race, the the evidence of Ford Foundation participation right. led to congressional action which which uh, severely restricted that and that in in the area uh, as, as we all know for all the problems and abuses in this area right getting congressional action on you know is, is almost impossible so this this issue of, of uh, voter registration actually packed a you know a fairly powerful uh, negative uh, punch at, at one point um, we have time for one more question. We have five more minutes. And I know, I know I, lots of folks here. Chris Gates, come on. Sunlight Foundation, you're still here, aren't you? Um, I want a question from a woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, here we go. Thank you. Yes. Hi, Joanne Florino with Philanthropy Roundtable. Um, my question actually has to do with the wording of candidate-related activities which um, the roundtable, I will say, we submitted a comment. And it had to do with the fact that that's such a broad notion. And we keep using political and candidate-related and partisan, and they're in, they, they keep getting used interchangeably. Mm -hmm. But my concern is that you're, you know, you're a nonprofit, you're a C3, and I do know the difference. Um, <laughs> and you know, you've been advocating uh, against um, uh, domestic violence or sexual assault on campus. For, I mean, this has been your passion for years and years. You happen to be in the state of New York. You're very concerned about sexual assault in the military. And guess what? It's 2016, and Kirsten Gillibrand's a candidate for senator. And this is something you've been doing all along, but now this has become a candidate-related issue. So what I want to hear about is how you think those rules can be addressed in a way that it doesn't, I mean, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm appalled about the free speech part of this, and I joked with somebody this morning that, you know, I'm not sure there would be much that I'd put in front of free speech, and that must mean I'm very old, or I don't know, warm puppies are free speech? No, I'll take free speech, thank you. But um, I think that that's a concern of mine. It's a big one for the C3 community, and I agree with John. These things are going to trickle, they're going to trickle down or up, depending on where you think virtue lies in, among the 501Cs, 
but I, I think that that issue, and I want to hear about candidate-related as a topic, because it seems to me that that's where we had a lot of disputes in the C4 universe. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so you're definitely pinpointing one of the hardest things about drafting these rules for the IRS is getting that candidate-related activity definition right. Um, and that it does have impacts across the sector, and, it's, and so it's really important to do so. Um, the way that they're doing it right now doesn't work, uh, which is why we need these new rules. This vague sort of facts and circumstances test makes it hard for them to figure out when something is political and when it isn't. Um, so certainly, you know, one of the things that the Bright Lines Project is trying to do is to figure out how do we define things like that, and then what are the safe harbors that make sense so that we can protect important activities around issues that organizations have care about and are core to their mission. And so that, that is one of our safe harbors, sort of that kind of issue advocacy. And we hope that uh, when the IRS drafts these rules again, that a safe harbor like that is in there, because uh, certainly it will impact C4s, but also potentially C3s. Yeah, anybody else? Last thoughts from the panel on any topic in general? No, nothing. Good, all right, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's go. <laughs> <laughs>